Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you this hour. It's another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off. This is a uh, an exciting time. Back from Southeast Linux Fest, we had an absolute blast. Thank you to everybody that came out to see us do our live show on Saturday. Make a couple of our huge announcements, both of which we'll reiterate in this episode. If you are a Tuesday viewer, if you come to Tuesday and you come to listen to the Ask Noble show and you go, wait, what? There were some missed episodes? Yes, we did an episode from Southeast Linux Fest as well as an episode called Bootstrapping Self right from the home of Jeremy Sands, our benevolent dick. <laughs> our benevolent dictator. Now you can catch both of those at podcast.asknoahshow.com. They'll come in the exact same place that your usual podcast app would have it. We'll reiterate both of the, the, the announcements in this episode as, as we carry on. Phone number, if you'd like to be a part of the program, it is 855-450-NO. We'd love to have you. Tony joins us from Canada. Hey, Tony, welcome into the program. Hey, Noah. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks uh, for taking the time to be here. Uh, two, two questions, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, so the first one is, is at work here. We're uh, I'm a sysadmin. We're looking for, um, you know, possibly deploying some used Cisco switches into production. Now I don't know. You know, I've read sort of mixed things of people saying they're you know they're perfectly viable, like a, a 3750X as a perfectly viable switch. But a lot of other people saying don't do it. Uh, I wanted to kind of get your take on it and see what you think. And if you don't think it's good, uh, maybe if you had an alternative or something that's PoE um, and not not, you know, too, too expensive. Sure. Uh, so the first thing I will tell you is that I grew up in Cisco land. The first probably eight years of my career, all we worked on was Cisco equipment, Cisco routers, Cisco switches. I know Cisco iOS like the back of my hand. I, I did all of the Cisco certs. They make an absolutely outstanding quality product. I mean, the kind of thing that you would absolutely trust in a data center, in an ISP, in a college, in your house. It doesn't matter where it is. I don't have enough good things to say about the quality of Cisco equipment. It is fantastic. The downside to Cisco is it is very, very, very expensive. And along with being very, very, very expensive, um, the way that they approach software updates and software upgrades is basically uh, uh, on, a, on a service basis, right? You have to pay for a contract to get the newest version of iOS. And I don't mean iOS for you kids that think that's an uh, an operating system for an iPhone long 20 years before it was an operating system for an iPhone it was an operating system for Cisco routers and Cisco switches so that's a roundabout way of saying if if the Cisco switch does what you need it to do and doesn't have any vulnerabilities that would be detrimental to your environment um, using used Cisco switches a fantastic way to go in fact to your point when we built this studio here um, we were doing a lot of audio over IP and audio over IP is some of the most demanding network performance that you can ever expect from equipment. And in our research, we tried we because we install at Altuspeed Technologies, we typically install HP switches. 
Um, and any sort of major deployment is we have HP switches. If it's a smaller home office or a small business network, sometimes we'll use the Unify switches, but they fall apart pretty quickly anytime you need some really advanced uh, networking functionality. So, I mean, even stacking, right? If you're going to do stacking switches, you probably want to stay away from Unify. Um, and so for that reason, we've always uh, been an HP shop. When we started doing fabric testing on AOIP switches, what we came across was that the only switch that actually lives up to its specifications is Cisco. And so the only switch that we could use in this studio was Cisco. And I wasn't about to shell out $5,000, $6,000 in switching uh, hardware. So we bought used 2960s and, um, and we, we provisioned them and we installed them. And guess what? They run just as well today as the day that they were made. And in fact, the audio over IP supplier that we use actually recommends the 2960 and they will still support them. Um, so that's a really long winded answer but basically, the answer is yes, absolutely use them. I have no problem with use Cisco switches. In fact, I personally don't own any new ones. Every piece of Cisco gear I own is used because I'm not willing to pay that price point. And they work flawlessly. Just understand that whatever operating system comes on them, unless you're willing to purchase a support agreement outside of, uh, outside of purchasing that switch, which is going to carry an additional expense, you're not going to be able to update it, basically. Oh, that's, that's great. Thank you so much, Noah. Yeah, you bet. And then... Uh that, yeah, that was that was really good. Um, that helps a lot. So, the the last question I had was, <clears throat> we're looking at replacing an SNMP monitoring system that we currently have uh, in place, and I won't go into why we want to get it. It's you know very detailed, but uh, we're looking for something essentially that we can deploy a box remotely on a customer site, have it dial back into you know our main office or our main data center and be able to report back. So the idea with the behind the box is that when it's monitoring different equipment. Uh, it could do it behind the customer's firewall mm. without them having to open anything up, and it sort of tunnels back out to us. So our, our current solution does that, and I wanted to know if if there's anything else, preferably open source. Uh, we don't mind paying, obviously. That's that's fine. Uh, but, you know, something that, that, would, that you would think would fit the bill. I would check out Zabbix. Um, the thing that Zabbix is going to do is Zabbix actually has an SMT, uh, SMNP, SNMP, wow, uh, agent that you install that 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 snoops SMMP traffic and then uh, sends it back to the Zabbix server. Now, I have usually provisioned the Zabbix server on site, so I'm not sure. I couldn't tell you one with 100% certainty if that agent would speak across a layer three device because obviously SNMP is not really designed to. It's designed to to, to stay on the network. But if you want to just grab a hold of of data and and metrics and then send it back and say here's what the network is doing and come back to zabbix that may be possible um, most of the time what we do is we run the zabbix uh, machine on site and then we just use vpn technology to get into it i mean it's got a web dashboard and stuff so you're able to to view it from any pc so it's a real simple solution um and, and that i i would say that would absolutely fit your bill okay all right, I'll definitely take a look at that then. Yeah, thank you so much. It's open source. It's free. I mean, uh, you can't go wrong. I mean, you you certainly won't be any worse off, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. All Perfect. Right. Thank you so much, Noah. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for the call. We'll have a link for you in the show notes to Zabbix. 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. Uh, did we lose them? A little bit of a problem here. Let's go ahead and see. There we go. Do I have you on the air, sir? Uh, I believe so, if you can hear me. I can. What's on your mind? Oh, sweet. Well, my name is George. I'm calling from New York. Um, and I did go to self, and I have to say that was my first time and the best time I've ever had at a conference. 
Awesome. Did uh, did did you? What was your favorite part about self? Oof. Well, one um, being surrounded by like-minded individuals, and I believe you said it earlier. Is uh, it felt good to not be the smartest one in the room? Not that I'm bragging or anything, but to have other people smarter, way smarter about things than me was just great because then I could just ask all the questions I wanted. For sure. I said the exact same thing on the air on, on, on whenever we did the show from self, I think Saturday. It's great to just not be the smartest person in the room because you have the opportunity to learn something and bring something back and you have the opportunity to move your career and your, your knowledge base forward. I spent two hours in a guy's hotel room uh, just sitting with him talking about stuff and bouncing ideas off and getting insight. And that's the kind of thing that you just can't replace. And it's something that you're just not going to experience unless you're at an event like self. So I'm glad to hear that. Uh, what's on your mind tonight? You know, well, um, being there and then actually walking by y'all's booth several times, just looking at all the stuff, you got me really interested in the audio over IP. So at my church, we're trying to set up a streaming system. Uh, I'm building a Linux box for the actual streaming, and they have a mixer at the uh, you know back of the house. Um, it's Dante, it has Dante, and I'm wondering if there's a way to send that Dante signal of like the different channels from the mixer to a Linux box for like editing and possibly like Reaper or something like that. Yes, there is. The, um, the, the so Dante is essentially it's something like this, George. We have developed a standard for AOIP called AES67, and AES67 is like the very basic standard for in, encapsulating RTP audio packets, sending it across a network, and then receiving it on the other end. Now, m different manufacturers have taken their different spins on AE67, and they incorporate some advanced features. So, for example, one of the things that Dante offers is an advertisement. So when you plug a Dante device in to a Dante network and um, another device comes online, those two devices can instantly see each other because they're advertising to each other. Now, the nice thing about Dante is it is interoperable between Yamaha and uh, and Presonus and any of the and, and, and Behringer and all of these companies that manufacture different equipment. So you don't have to worry about, well, is this going to work with that? And it's as long as it supports and, and conforms to an AES 67 standard, it's going to work just fine. Now, the second part of your question, is there a driver available for a Linux box that will allow you to uh, ingest or or output AES 67 compliant audio? And the answer to that question is also yes. Um, and so what I can do is uh, it, that's obviously a, a fairly complicated um, thing to, to, to go over inside of a two minute radio call. But what I can do is I can put some links for yeah. you. Yeah, I can put some links for you in the show notes, though, and I can direct you to uh, one of our partners that deals specifically with AES 67 audio and who we purchased our Linux drivers uh, for AES 67 from. And you can go that way. Now, there's also and I, we covered it a couple of weeks ago. I believe it's called Rock. And it is a brand new AOIP system that is coming out for Linux, completely open source. It's a great project. Um, one of the things I am hoping is that the the project leader and their uh, their contributors decide to kind of retool that system to be AES67 compliant because it would be really great to have a fully open source AES67 compliant audio driver on Linux. And if that ever happens, I will be the first one to wipe all of these systems clean and install them because I think it's absolutely the way to go. Um, but the, 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 answer to your question is yes. It's just a matter of how much work you're willing to put into it. 
I will. Um, so if we, with bleh, sorry. Um, so I get that signal in. I can you know pull it in Reaper, mix it or whatever, um, and then do output it to a stream. Would you recommend on the same machine or would you recommend a secondary machine? Depends on stream. Yeah, it depends. Depends entirely on what you want to do. So if you want, if you're not doing any sort of processing, if you're just ingesting it and spitting out to a stream, uh, you could do that on a single machine. You could run. Uh, you could run an AS67 driver. The input would be the AOIP channel of you know whatever the main bus of the mixer is and then the output would be uh you know a different channel which you would then route to something like uh, dark ice which would stream it over to an ice casser you could do something like that they also make hardware boxes that you can purchase that will pick up an AES 67 um uh you know, live stream and and then restream it out as an actual buffered RTP stream. Because the the thing with the ES67 audio is you have no buffering, right? Any packets that don't instantly hit the receiving unit are going to be dropped because it's real time. We can't go back in time and reinsert audio packets. So it's all real time. And in order to be imperceptible to the human ear, AES67 calls for a standard for a latency less than 0.75 milliseconds. So you have to be below that in order for it to be usable because if you were to put headphones on and speak into a microphone, if the microphone microphone is speaking over the network and the headphones are speaking over the network uh you have to have less than 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 0.75 milliseconds in order for your your ears not to detect latency any more than that and you start to hear um like a warble effect and and if you get too ba- too far into it then you actually start to say something and then hear it back and it becomes completely disorienting um and so for that reason and in order to get that low amount of latency there's no such thing as buffering in AES 67 so the problem is when you want to go out to the internet and stream to a bunch of other people that's a great time to have buffering. And um, and so in order to make that happen, what you have to do is is use something like IceCast. And uh, and so, yeah, but but it's totally possible. All right, cool. I look forward to uh, playing with it, trying to get it to work. Awesome, George. Thanks for the call. Hey, thank you. 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. We'd love to have you make your voice heard and become a part of the program. So... Mozilla is rolling out a paid service, a paid uh, upsell, I guess, as it were, a paid subscription service to VPN cloud storage. And uh, they're aiming to get this done by the end of the year, says October. Now, the goal for Mozilla is to develop a diverse source of revenue so that it isn't so heavily reliant on money it receives from search companies to pay uh, to pay to be featured in the browser. Now, there's a couple of things that come to mind here. I think that the Mozilla organization is a perfect organization to tar- start taking privacy on because I don't believe that they've ever really compromised. As Linux geeks, as nerds, I think sometimes we take liberties to rag on companies for every little thing that goes wrong because, frankly, I think we need something to complain about sometimes. The truth is, as it relates to Mozilla, they have always tried to put their customer first. And one of the things I have asked people who criticize Mozilla for their choices is, have you attended a Mozilla meeting? Have you attended a Mozilla meeting and have you heard what their plans were and did you voice uh, dissent before that? And the answer is usually no. The answer is usually no. We waited until after Mozilla had their meeting, made a decision. That decision went into production. A bunch of clickbait articles came out and talked about what a bad decision it was. Now we're on that bandwagon, right? And I don't think that's a responsible way to approach the community. If you have a problem with what Mozilla does, fine. Let's have that discussion before they make the decision. And Mozilla can't be, really can't be called into question for the transparency or lack thereof because all of their meetings are open. So a lot of people had a problem 
with search providers being paid or search providers paying to have partnerships with Mozilla. Personally, I don't have a problem with it. As long as I have a setting that I can go turn the search provider off or I can choose what search provider I want, I could care less what's default. I also could care less what oh, what help happens in a blank tab or in a blank window. As long as I have the opportunity to go into the configuration and change what shows up in that blank window or that blank tab, I don't see that as a problem. Now, one thing I think is interesting for this direction of, of Mozilla is... Well, let me back up. So I agree that Mozilla is probably a great organization to run a privacy-based service like VPN or cloud storage. I say that because I think people like me will trust them. If Mozilla comes out with a VPN service, I would trust that to be a secure VPN service. Now, previously, they've based it on ProtonVPN, and it, by all appearances, it appears that's what will be going forward. But maybe they will spin something else. Maybe they have tried ProtonVPN just to get an idea what the interest was, and then they're going to roll their own. Either way, I think it's going to be interesting. I also think it would be particularly useful to users if we could get to a point where you could open up Firefox and just like I can open a private window tab, if I could open a VPN tab or I could open a VPN window and now without having to worry about entering credentials and downloading certificates and entering configuration and IP addresses and exit nodes and all that crap, if I could just click a new uh, VPN window and all of a sudden it would establish a VPN connection to one of Mozilla's VPN servers and I would have a secure tunnel to collection connection that didn't have any sort of tracking, I'd be all for that. Now, we don't really take sponsors on this show in the traditional way. We mentioned Vox Telesis because they were kind enough to donate our broadcast phone system and they provide us with excellent service. And so anytime somebody asks me what I recommend for VoIP service, they're an obvious choice because they've done they do a good job and they're all linux nerds right and we've done a couple shows from there and we really appreciate what they do for the program but the only the only company or service that's actually listed on asknoahshow.com you might have seen this at the very bottom is private internet access and the reason that we chose private internet access to partner with is because they are the only vpn company so far that has a proven track record in federal court of not turning over user data if you have a pia account and you get summoned or the, the federal authorities want to come after you and they go to private internet access and they say, hey, we need to know what so-and-so was doing. They're going to say, we'd love to, um, but we don't keep uh, records. And they said, no, you don't understand. We have a court subpoena. You have to give us the records. We'd love to come look at our servers. I mean, you're welcome to take whatever you have. Uh, we just, we don't keep logs. And they've done that not once, but twice in court, managed to prove that they are not going to violate user privacy. If... Proton VPN can establish a similar reputation or Mozilla can establish a similar reputation. We would love to revisit that decision, but VPNs are becoming critical in a post Snowden world in a time where people are conscious of their privacy and they figured out that they're either going to pay with their privacy with their wallet. They're going to pay for a service with their privacy or their wallet. And a lot of people are saying, I'm not willing to pay for it with my privacy. Now I want to pay for it with my wallet. And turns out, I don't remember what PIA is. I think it's like 15 bucks a year. I mean, it's just don't go out for a burger and you'll be able to afford a year's subscription. Absolutely ridiculous. More information at AskNoahShow.com. We'd love you to sign up. Facebook has decided that they are jumping on the cryptocurrency bandwagon. Now, <laughs> I don't where to begin with this. Facebook has secured the backing of over a dozen companies for its upcoming. And this is a really great name. Libra Cryptocurrency set to be announced next week. Okay, Visa, MasterCard, PayPal, Uber, Stripe, and Booking.com 
are the ones that are donating money for this new cryptocurrency. And I just, I just love the fact that they chose Libra cryptocurrency. If that isn't a, if that isn't a swipe at the, the, Hey, we can nerd with you. We can nerd harder than you can. We know you like open. We know you like Libra. So we'll just name it that you'll be too dumb to figure it. You know, this is exactly what I want in cryptocurrency. I want something with the expense and tracking of Visa, with the censorship of Uber, with the terrible customer service of PayPal and the fantastic privacy record of Facebook. That's what I want. Oh, yeah. And Stripe. Uh, the what, what is Stripe? They're, 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 they're also a big censorship thing, right? They deplatform people all the time. I mean, how does this sound like a good idea? These people have no idea what cryptocurrency is about. These people have no clue why people like me use cryptocurrency. It's like buzzword bingo. They see something, they're like, hey, cryptocurrency. Hey, a lot of people are into that cryptocurrency. How, how do we do that? It, it strikes me as ridiculous as major companies who hire firms to specialize in social media management, right? That's like the very opposite reason of why people went to social media in the first place. You had traditional corporate corporate people that speak corporate that were all over traditional news outlets. And all of a sudden people started to get sick of it and they went, Hey, look at this. Instead of getting the dumbed down watered down version of some press release that is sent out on CNN.com or whatever, I can actually go talk to the person in charge. I can tweet at that person and get a real human reply. And you know what's hilarious? I just watched this happen this week. Um, Capital One has a product called Spark Business, which we have been very happy with, by the way. So I don't want to throw them under the bus. They're great. They've treated us very, very well. And the product is very, very good for small business. One of the only truly free business checking accounts you can get. And but they had a, a bit of a kerfluffle with some of their users. And it was on. it came out on Twitter. And what was funny was they kept trying to release these like perfectly crafted PR friendly blurbs of we're constantly working to improve the customer experience. And and people would retweet and then reply and say, hey, it's been four months. This thing still doesn't work. And then they would give another blip and you could watch them make an idiot out of themselves because that's what social media does. Everybody is on an equal playing ground. People who are who are so excited to jump on the Libra cryptocurrency bandwagon do not understand what it is that drives the very clientele they're trying to earn to cryptocurrency in the first place. Quote, it's expected to function as a stable coin, meaning that it will be pegged to the basket of government issues currencies in order to limit the volatility typically associated with cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. All right. So. The very reason that Bitcoin took off as strong as it did at the beginning, like the very founding reason was the fact that it wasn't tied to a fiat currency. Fiat currencies are at the subject hand of government. Government gets to decide what those fiat currencies do. And cryptocurrency has to play ball with it. If you're tying one to a, to to a fiat currency. That is to say, if the government wants to increase the amount of currency they have and deflate the value of a dollar, the dollar has less purchasing power. You can do that with a fiat currency. The whole idea of cryptocurrency was that it couldn't be controlled by the government. So now you want to take a cryptocurrency and tie it to a fiat currency. What's the point of having a cryptocurrency then? 
Nobody actually cares about the blockchain. It's just the blockchain is the only way that we can manage that amount of transactions over that amount of geographical area with no central infrastructure. That's the whole idea. If you're going to put Visa and MasterCard at the very center of this entire system and you're going to involve tracking and stuff like that, there's no point in having a blockchain because we're back to central authority. There's no point in going to an alternative currency that's not tied to the hand of a government if you're going to marry it at the hip to the currency that's tied to a government. You don't understand what makes cryptocurrency valuable. And, 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 and so cryptocurrency undisputedly is going to be the future of online transactions. I 100% believe that. Now, I can't tell you if it's going to be Bitcoin or Litecoin or Libra currency. I have no idea what specific incarnation it's going to be. But I'll tell you this. It is a major pain in the tuchus to transfer money for, from your bank account into your PayPal account, then transfer money in your PayPal account to somebody else's PayPal account for an auction that you want on eBay and the person lives in China or Japan or wherever. Then you have to wait the six or seven days for all of the clearance and money laundering stuff to, 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 to evaporate. And finally, that person finally gets paid. And then they ship your item. And then 17 days later, 17 days after that initial 14 days of payment crap, then you finally get your item. It's much cleaner, much simpler, and much more desirable to just say, hey, this thing goes over here. We all certify the transaction. Now that person has money. I wanted to buy a thing. I bought a thing. We're all in agreement. A transaction over. And there is no chargeback, and there is no guarantee, and there is no tie to identity, and there is no uh, central authority. None of that stuff exists. None of that stuff exists with cryptocurrency, and that's what makes it great. The the what bothers these companies, what bothers Facebook, what bothers Visa, what bothers Stripe is they have been part of a system for a very, very long time. And they are used to mega dollar dollar bing, yo. The entire system must run through one of these companies. And they are petrified that as cryptocurrency takes off, that you, the idiot user who has been subjugated to them for many, many years, now all of a sudden has another option. And they don't like that. And they want control. And it's a function of control. And that's specifically what people that are interested in cryptocurrency are trying to get away from. Quote, Facebook will need to overcome numerous regulatory hurdles before it's able to launch the currency. And will need to address concerns re regarding fraud, money laundering, and uh, within the consortium. Okay, let's break that down for a second. How do you, let me ask you something at a basic fundamental level. How can you possibly seek to regulate identity management? How can you possibly seek to curb money laundering if you don't know who the users are? The answer is you can't. You have to know who your users are. You have to establish a form of identity so that you can decide if they're committing money from laundering, you can go after the person. And that tie of identity to a transaction is, again, exactly what cryptocurrency was designed to avoid. So this is going nowhere. The reality is, how many of you actually get paid in physical dollar bills? How many of you actually get a paycheck that you take to a bank and you cash? The vast majority, I would bet, probably get some sort of electronic deposit. So you never actually see fiat currency. Your employer tells you you got X dollars, X dollars shows up in your bank account. You probably take your debit card, at least I do, or my phone, and swipe it next to a payment terminal. It deducts my magical money out of my magic piggy bank, and I have less of it, right? And then that person has more. It's all, and then, and then by the way, that, that retailer probably never sees it either. It swipes my debit card, it gets deposited into their bank account, 
and they probably make a bunch of electronic transactions. So if the goal is just to electronicize money, we've already done that. And we've been there for the last 15 years. That's not the appeal of cryptocurrency. And every article I have read on this seems to reference back to the idea that they're somehow skating into the future by taking all of the things that cryptocurrency was great at, stripping them out and leaving us with essentially the electronic dollar bill, which we already have. If you regulate this, you ruin it. If you incorporate identity management into this, you ruin it. If you tie it to a fiat currency, you ruin it. This is not going anywhere. This is not going anywhere at all. Libra currency, it is, it, this is a, <laughs> I, can't, I don't have the figure here. I had it earlier and I, I, I didn't bother to save my show. It's something like $10 million. These, these, these uh, consortiums are, I mean, it's just absurd the amount of money they're wasting because they don't understand their audience. X-Men in the chat room says, this will get them closer to China. It's a social profile where you can control, where they can control you and shun you. Yeah, I completely agree. This is a function of control. 100%. Das Geek in the chat room says Facebook will know everything you buy with a crypto tie back to everybody's profile. Tell people it's private and hand it all over the records to the government, ruin your reputation of crypto, and then move back to wreck the next thing in tech. And I, I don't know if I could have said that better myself. I have zero interest in Libra cryptocurrency. Zero interest in what Facebook and Visa and MasterCard is doing, and I hope it dies in a fire. Was that unclear? Because I wouldn't want to be unclear. 855-450-NOAH, that is the number to join us. It's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. Our next guest, he is the managing director, the global head of cloud, the applications and integrations platform at Deutsche Bank. It is Tom Gilbert. Now, Tom joined Deutsche Bank back in 2001 to design and build the company's first real platform as a service offerings for web and application hosting. Now, he's responsible for cloud application, integrating platforms, and almost half of Deutsche Bank's application workloads. He is responsible for the public cloud strategy, the company's center of excellence. Drew, uh, he, he, what drew my attention to Tom was that he introduced Red Hat OpenShift container platform at Deutsche Bank as part of the Fabric, the bank's strategic and hybrid cloud platform. And we had a chance to catch up with Tom at Red Hat Summit and ask him about some of the innovations and the way that he's leveraging open source to reduce the risk to business. Here's that audio. Free and open source software for a long time has been frowned upon or has been kind of hidden in the shadows. We're starting to see that come to light. There has been this idea that if it's free, it must suck, right? <laughs> and today, what we're finding is the exact opposite is true, is that free and open source software has some of the highest quality and highest security off there. Uh, how has that changed in the industry? Yeah, I, I, I've, I've been really interested in this journey from the beginning, really. My, um, I wouldn't be where I, I was today without the, the Red Hat CD I sent off for in a magazine back <laughs> in the 90s, right? Uh, which really got me into open source. But <clears throat> I think we have a lot... Uh, to thank for the real juggernauts of open source, like you know the Apaches, the Linux, you know the, these these projects, which just you know the internet runs on these days, and 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 I think that that has done a lot to challenge this perception that free software is somehow inferior to to commercial software, because uh, I, I, even even back in 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 the late nineties, you, you know the the internet was running on software like Apache. Um, I joined Deutsche Bank to bring Apache into the bank as an open source. Really? Yeah, to run our web platform. And yeah, sure, it was, there were some challenges then getting that message across that this was the way to do it. But I, I actually think in the engineering community, you, you 
there weren't many better choices, right? Um, and so we have a lot to thank for those kind of juggernauts, and, and it's snowballed. I mean, now there's this rich ecosystem that is out there that you can, you can do almost, almost anything. You can solve almost any problem. You have so many options, and they're available, and they're of quality, and they're now getting easier and easier to use. So I think, uh, you, you know, the, the momentum is, is, is just been running away. Uh, and we're now in a position where I actually think that open source is becoming the default. It's actually starting to really? become the preference in many cases. Above and beyond becoming the default, do you ever see a time when it will become frowned upon to suggest a proprietary solution where companies are going to get to a point where they're going to say, are you kidding me? I don't want the vendor lock-in. I don't want the security headaches. I don't want to not know what's in the code. I want to be able to audit it. Is there a time when open source becomes above and beyond the default but becomes laughable to choose anything else? Yeah. I, I, it, in, in some cases, that's already happening. I think security is a great example of that. Um, it is security professionals, the ones I work with anyway, if they can't see the codes, the, the, the likelihood that they're going to trust the algorithm, you know, they're going to, um, is, is pretty low. And we've had examples in the industry of uh, proprietary security software that it doesn't get fixed fast enough, um, that vulnerabilities are, are found by the wrong people, not the right people. And, um, and without that disclosure, without that openness, it, you, you, you know, you may not know what risks you're exposed to using that kind of software. So I think security is a good example of where open source and open standards have really come to the, come to the fore. Um, within uh, a regulated industry like, like Deutsche Bank's, um, we worry about lock-in a lot. Our regulators are concerned with vendor risk, right? With being overly dependent on a specific vendor. And so even if we get commercial support for some op open source software, um, that openness gives us always a fallback. Right? And that's really powerful, which is that you know, I could fall out with the vendor or the vendor could, could go out of business, but I've got the source code. Right? So I'm still good. We can still operate. We don't have you know, th th this not locked, not locked in, right? You don't have this disruption to the, to the supply chain. So we do worry about that kind of risk. And that's why we're, we're really starting to position every platform in our bank, at least having an open source option in the portfolio. Right? So we've actually made that policy now. So you know, whether it's databases or, or, or web or, or, or Java applications or whatever the kind of category of software, we want to make sure that we have an option in the portfolio which is well engineered around an open source product. Uh, and in some cases, that open source product is, is the target, is the strategic choice. Walking around uh, Summit or actually any IT conference really for the last five, six years, all you see is containers and the push of containers and the rise of containers and different competing container technology. Mm. I'm curious, what's your opinion on how that has changed the workflows of IT? It's, it's probably one of the biggest changes I've seen um, in, in kind of 20 years running platforms and using open source software. Um, for a couple of angles, I, th I think the, the, this, the richness of this ecosystem, ecosystem is a lot about the, the magnifying effect of using things in combination. And products like Kubernetes and containers allow, it, it just makes it so much more consumable. Right? The rough edges around some of this software, you know, there's learning curves um, in, in terms of, you know, take an example like Kafka, right? There's some sharp edges there. There's a learning curve in how to do that kind of stuff well. What happens, what's, what's happening now, and we've seen a lot of that at, at, at this conference, is we're seeing things like operators come along, 
container images and standard sort of templates for, for deploying these, these kinds of workloads, allowing you to kind of smooth off some of those rough edges to engineer it once and well and then reuse the heck out of that thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and I think that's the real, the real benefit of, of this kind of, you know, building ecosystem around containers, Kubernetes, and as you say, you know, other alternatives in that space. Um, it makes it consumable. It makes it really reusable, you know, in, in the runtime. Uh, in, in a real way. And we've been talking about reuse in the IT industry for years and years, and it's, it's always been a tough thing to do. But what I'm now seeing in our, in our bank is we're, we're, we're creating templates, engineering them well, having the whole organization contribute to those templates, and therefore magnifying the benefit that, that we get. I, I think the other thing that has really changed is the speed, um, and containers in particular, in terms of how fast they are to start up, how easy they are to move around an environment, uh, and how you can use orchestrators like Kubernetes to, to create homogenous pools of, of infrastructure, it, it just allows us to do things that we could never do before in terms of standing up test environments in the blink of an eye, pipelines to do continuous integration and development, and again, for a bank, being able to release new ideas into production during the business day without massive impact to our operation, right? and without worrying too much about the risk of change. Because these these technologies are now built around the idea that con- continual change is normal. And so now my experience is that everything is a pipeline and, and we are moving faster than we ever have before. When we look at other emerging technologies, one thing you're seeing is an offloading of internal services out to centralized places so that we create everything as a service. Everything as a service. And you walk around the expo hall and what you see is everything is software as a service. I'm wondering, have you seen any pushback from people that are looking at software as a service? And if so, what can we do to combat that pushback and what can we do to implement change within software as a service? Yeah, I, I, that's been the story of my career. Uh, I, I, jo- I joined the bank to build platforms. Um, I uh, uh, over the years we built a number of uh, of platform as a service offerings within the bank, and my customers, my customers within the bank are the the IT development community. Um, and I've been through every phase of that journey from the very beginning, where um, the the benefits of multi tenancy to reduce cost may not mean much to an organization that's making plenty of revenue and doesn't particularly want to share, right, and sees sharing as a risk, right? So when you talk about kind of multi-tenant platforms, then people worry about all their eggs being in one basket. You worry about your kind of risk domain and, and, and um, the, the kind of blast zone of potential impact from, from, from incidents and things like that. So you do get pushback. Um, I think the ways that you combat it are numerous. Um, I think... Don't make platforms a black box, right? And again, one of the great things about open source applies to the way that you build and run platforms as well. Um, nobody likes a black box. It's really hard to trust something that doesn't you, you can't you can't see inside of. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether that's seeing inside of it in terms of having access to the source code, or whether it's more getting the operational data and metrics out to to feel assured that the platform is running well, and um, uh, the the kind of self service and APIs that allow you to. Um, interact with that platform in the way that you choose to, right? That's all about opening up. Um, so I think opening up the platform is really important. Within within Deutsche Bank, we have a, a, a real culture around building with our customers, not for them. So I will not take requirements and go away for six months and come back with a platform. Right. That doesn't work. That never worked, really. But we now have better ways of doing that kind of development. So bringing the customers in to build the platform together, giving them ways to contribute into that platform, mm-hmm. The platforms I run within within our bank 
I am the custodian of. They are not my platforms. They are the bank's platforms. And I think that that goes as well in the you know, software as a service and in, in, in other modes of, of, of delivering platforms, which is allow your customers the feeling of contribution um, and, and commitment into that ecosystem because that will improve the result uh, for, for, for both parties. Business is very competitive and it's very aggressive. How have you seen Linux sort of change the game as it relates to rapid development? It, it, it really has. Uh, and um, having been involved with it for so many years, I, 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 it's exciting for me. I love conferences like this. I love to see that this stuff is everywhere now. Everyone is talking about it. Everyone is using it. Um, it's, it's low friction. It's got, um, uh, it's, it's consumable in a way. So in banks and, and historically using commercial software, you, you, you know, you, you tend to do or we tended to do this kind of waterfall approach to our, to our development and, and releasing applications and getting new products to market. And you'd probably plot about three months there for commercial discussions and negotiations with a vendor around the software that you want to use, right? Mm -hmm. And, and you're going to try and size it right. You're going to try and get the right kind of, um, uh, size and scale around the deployment way before you've actually started to run yeah, run the software in production and really know what you need. Mm -hmm. And you almost never size it right the first time. Um, and you lock yourself into a contract which might be inflexible. I think whether you're doing it in production or, 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 or just as part of the, the, the kind of research and development of new products, open source is just, it's consumable with less friction. Size and scale is up to you, right? And you're not necessarily constrained by you know, how many cores you can run that software on, for example, because of a, you know, a contract that you signed a year ago. Um, it, it just gives you this enormous flexibility and access to this pace of innovation, which, it, I mean, I, I'm still trying to keep up with, right? And I, the, the number of new names of widely deployed open source products that I've seen this week at Summit, you, you know, I can never keep up. Right. It's incredible, but but that is that gives you access to so much productivity. You talked a lot about not putting your eggs in one basket, and even if we have some proprietary alternatives, we want open source to be part of that, or at least to leverage open source against maybe some of those proprietary alternatives so we have somewhere to go. How has open source changed the the risk analysis for business? Yeah, I, I, I think... Um, in, in terms of risk, we, there, there are different types of risk that we look at, right? Um, and there are pros and cons to open source from a risk point of view. And I, and, and I think, you, you know, the, the, the one thing you always have to be careful about is your is your end-to-end -end supply chain for software. Um, and uh, one of the complexities with open source is the, the, the list of dependencies of some of the products can be very long. So I think one thing we do worry about, in especially, again, in banks where we're we're handling other people's money, right? So this is, you know, really important to get this kind of stuff right, is that we do have to look at the supply chain and the dependencies that are coming with the software that we're using. And I think, you know, I've seen studies that say the average application that we're deploying is probably 70% someone else's code, right? Open source third-party libraries all the way down. And so we we certainly have to think about how we're analyzing the risk of, of deploying some of that software and look at tools that allow us to you know um, investigate that supply chain look for vulnerabilities that might be developed you know three layers deep in the stack um, because we, we we obviously don't want to get you know caught unawares by you know a, a, a kind of low level library that's being used by a higher level library that we're consuming that we maybe didn't even know was there. So I think I think it does put a little bit of an onus on us to look at that supply chain. There's some great tools out there now uh, that allow you to manage dependencies, versions, you know, look at vulnerabilities that are emerging, um, and of course tools 
you know, like with OpenShift that allow you to very quickly then roll out you know, those new versions. So, so that's one element of risk that we look at quite, quite a lot. Um, the reversibility risk is well managed, as I said, with, um, with, with open source software because you always have the kind of the keys to the hood. If anything goes wrong with your vendor relationships, you've still got the code. Um, and, and, and that's certainly really important. Um, but I think, yeah, we, we have to balance the kind of the security, um, uh, the, the monitoring of, you know, new versions and patches and things like that in the environment. And the rich ecosystem means that there is a lot of software. There's a lot of software in there, right? So you need good tools, definitely, to manage it. Tom Gilbert, he is with Deutsche Bank. Thanks so much, Tom, for taking the time to sit down with us and chat with us. And thank you very much for your work into open source and helping bring that into business at, at a scale that you that exists with something like Deutsche Bank. We appreciate your time, and thanks for coming on the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Cheers. It's always nice when somebody like uh, Deutsche Bank takes the time to come on the As Noah Show and spread what they're doing at a massive, massive level that a lot of us can't even really conceptualize um, and how important Linux and open source is to them. So that's always exciting. It was a great interview, and I was excited to be able to have the time to do it. And I was thankful to Tom for taking time out of what I assume was a very busy day to chat with us. George calls from Denver. Hey, George, welcome into the program. Yeah, I just uh, wanted to follow up with you um I guess it was two weeks ago that you were uh, advising me on what might be the best way to clone uh, this uh, Windows uh, uh, MVME card that I had. Yes, I recall. So, um, yeah, I looked into uh, purchasing, you know, a $50 case, and I, I'm very frugal, so I, I didn't want to do that. So I, you know, looked up some more articles on the web, and they said, well, what you really need to do is create an image from windows and and i you know i had the original uh windows card so i so i created the image on another uh usb uh, stick and i thought oh great now i'm set uh so i put in the uh two um um usb sticks and i guess this is running windows uh no i guess it started up i started up i start up on my uh, so-called recovery usb stick mm -hmm. And it's supposed to find the uh, image that's on the other USB stick, but guess what? It uh, Windows uh, this Windows recovery program couldn't really see the image. Um, so anyway, I tr I tried it and it and it got like, like it ran a long time, and then it was like about when it was all finished up, it, it still wouldn't boot, and it was. Uh, about 10%. I looked at it with my Linux uh, drive and could see that uh, something had happened. I mean, it, it had created a Windows file system, but there wasn't any um, Windows installation on, on the, on the so-called uh, restored uh, stick. Okay, so I ran it again. This time it worked, and I was able to start up Windows. But really, the image that was created by Windows wasn't really uh, the image that was on my computer. It was just like a a whole new Windows install. Yeah. So, I mean, it hadn't really saved any of my settings or anything, which right. I thought was really annoying uh, in and of itself. So then uh, the whole reason I was kind of doing this, I was going to try to help a friend of mine that's, like, stuck on Windows. And I said, well, if you can simplify Windows, it might be easier for you. So... I started trying to remove some of the stuff from Windows, and the problem, I'm, I'm sure you know all of this and your listeners know all of this, but I just kind of want to give you my experience. So um, 
you know, about the only thing you can do is like, you know, search on the web, look at YouTube videos. And so you get these advice from these guys. Well, you know, you run this script or that script and you're going to do this and that. And you have no idea, I mean, uh, of the integrity of these people and what, what's really going to happen and so on. So um, anyway, um, I one of the things I didn't want, which I find very annoying, is the Edge browser because it keeps insisting that you use that if you, even if you don't want to. And uh, so I removed that, and it ended up uh, completely... Uh, destroying windows actually windows doesn't seem to be able to function without the edge browser and what it's it's like what would happen is it was i would try to do some kind of like the whole the whole windows experience is so annoying like this is where you have to type in um the the menu uh launcher menu thing and try to find out what you're trying to do and so on then it, it's inter mingled between the system and the web and so on and so forth. Well, anyway, uh, it, within about, um, I'd say, less than two hours, I'd totally hose this Windows system that I had just uh, restored. And um, so I said, well, okay, I'll try once again to do uh, this image thing. So I put in my two USB sticks and start up again. Same thing happened again. It couldn't find the image and so on. You know, I just said, this is ridiculous. So uh, the end result of all this effort uh, fooling around with Windows is I don't think Windows 10 is any better than any of the Windows that they've ever made in the past, which all have bad reputations. I agree. It's not worth your time to mess with Windows. I think the advice you should have given me was, you know what, you would be better off not to fool around with Windows at all. <laughs> Just stick with your Linux uh, system because uh, that's what I'm doing. I'm running uh, Ubuntu 19.04. It runs flawlessly. I it's very quick. It's it's beautiful. It's, I have no trouble with it whatsoever, and um, so it all the the whole experience just uh, substantiated uh, for me because I hadn't really used Windows since Windows 98. I, um, that Windows has not improved. Uh, it's not worth people's time to fool with it, uh, and they really should switch to Linux. But they have a hard time uh, doing that. But that was my experience. Well, that's why we're that's what we're here for. I just I've always I always thought you know especially when I started the show I I have my own views on what people should do with their hardware. But at the end of the day, the worst thing in the world and the internet is terrible with this, right? You come in and you ask for a solution to problem A, and then somebody gives you a solution to problem B and tells you why you should be really fighting the problem of problem B rather than problem A, right? And I just didn't I, I don't want to do that. If you want to know how to back up your Windows machine, I'm going to try and to the best of my ability to help you do that. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, I'm not I'm not I'm not criticizing um Oh, I didn't take it that way. I'm not criticizing you at all for for how you handle it. In fact, you gave me great advice. Uh, probably I'd have been better off if I'd really cloned my um my actual card, you know. It, it would have been a little bit better cuz at least it wouldn't have been a fresh install of Windows, but uh the, the Windows is just such a nightmare. I mean, that that's the only reason I wanted to call is just just my experience was this software is terrible, and I, I don't understand why people are so locked into it. It, it just blows my mind, and um, it, it just was a reaffirming experience of how awful the Windows experience is.
Awesome. Well, I appreciate you sharing your story with us. I'm sorry that it, it came with the exercise of frustration, but I'm glad it ultimately resulted in the uh, in a convert to Linux. Well, I mean, I've always been a Linux user, but it just it just substantiated that that there that there there's just no point in fooling with Windows at all. I'm not a gamer. I have no I I don't play games, so I don't really care about them. And to me, and apparently that's uh, listening to your other shows. Uh, Gaming is starting to move on to Linux pretty big time, so um, they're just. I I think Windows is dead. I really do. I I think uh, I don't like clear Linux, but I think uh, that's going to be what's going to happen. I think that's going to be the new Windows eventually, and um, I I th- I, I just I, I just think Windows is in the tank. It's it's finished. Well, you and I are in agreement on that, sir. I appreciate the call. All right. Thank you very much for helping me. Yep, I appreciate it. You too can send your feedback at live at asknoahshow.com. We take that at the end of every program. Nick writes in and says, first off, I love the show. I love all your shows. What you do for the community is amazing. I'm emailing you because I wanted to get your opinion. I'm looking to further my career and getting into cybersecurity. I've been doing some reading in books and watching videos, and there's a lot to learn. I do not want to learn on bare metal. I would like to set up a test lab, and I've tried doing it with VM Player. It simply takes up too much RAM. So does VirtualBox when you try to run a few machines at once. I went down the path of Hyper-V. Oh, God. I went down the path of Hyper-V Windows Server 2019, and that was a bust as well, though I had better luck than I did with VirtualBox. What are some other options I could use in a lab setup? I don't really want to spend a ton of money on on, on physical machines, but there has to be another way. One that's easy to create and run VMs without all the memory, bloat, and other front ends. Any help would be great. Well, let's start here. Uh, To answer your question most directly, if I were doing what you're trying to do, I would use libvirt-d. And the reason I would use libvirt-d is it's a very small, very lightweight hypervisor that runs almost close to bare metal. And it's, in fact, what Red Hat uses when they administrate the tests. That's what their lab is running on is is, is libvirt-d. So... It's about four commands to get set up, four commands to get up and running, and works absolutely fantastically. I will tell you something else that you might want to check out. There is a piece of open source software called GNS3. And what GNS3 allows you to do is virtualize switches and routers, and you can actually download the actual iOS ROMs from Cisco, which, of course, I would never do because I think it probably violates some sort of copyright. So they probably are out in the Internet, but I wouldn't know about that, of course. You download those ROMs, you can load them into GNS3, and then you can actually simulate network devices. Now, depending on what route you're going on down cybersecurity, if you're doing like, you know, certified ethical hacker, stuff like that, a lot of those, a lot of those classes, a lot of those labs, a lot of the workflows of those are actually involve a lot of networking technology. And so that might be a great place to start and really understand, um, you know, how does a, how does a layer two device work? How does a layer three device work? How does the OSI layer work? Um, how do you route traffic? Get that basic understanding down, and then you can start moving on to exploits on actual physical systems, which, of course, you're probably going to need to virtualize. And for doing that, like I said, I would do uh, Liberty. But uh, regardless of that, um, uh, even if you're not going to go down that route or even if you don't find GNS3 to be helpful from a cybersecurity standpoint, I still uh, recommend you check it out because it's a really cool piece of software and really helps you explore stuff. It also lets you lay out uh, various types of network. Um, I want to have a network that has these many switches and has this many routers and here are the IP addresses of these things and here's how they're connected, interconnected together and here's how the redundancy is. And so you can simulate different, entirely different environments. 
Um, and the ability to do that is is really incredible. The reason that you're running into problems with VirtualBox and probably the reason you're running into to um, in Hyper in Hyper V is because you know, VMware, Hyper V, VirtualBox, they're all trying to create that graphical desktop. Whereas LibVirtD, the only time you're going to get a graphic console is if you use the VNC console to get into it. But you can install just a you know just a, a text based server. You can do it that way. Of course, you can do Windows as well. Hey guys, the music means we're out of time. We got to go, but we'll be back next Tuesday. As always, if you'd like to follow us on Twitter, make sure to do that at Ask Noah Show. You can also get our video lytics focused content at youtube.com slash minddripmedia. We'd love to have you there. You can follow us, uh, uh, you can follow me personally on Twitter at Colonel Linux. The Ask Noah Show continues next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. A huge thanks to JT Pennington, our producer, Sarah, our call screener. This hour of the show may be over, but there's plenty of more content for you 24-7 at AskNoahShow.com. We'll see you next week, 6 p.m. Tuesday. Tuesday.